Welcome to the Pharmacy Podcast Show. You can find all of our episodes at PharmacyPodcast.com. Welcome to the Pharmacy Podcast. I'm your co-host in 2017 focused on more than your career development, Aaron Albert. More on me over at my website, AaronAlbert.com, or it would be great to connect at Twitter. My handle is at Aaron L. Albert. And of course, you can connect with us at Pharmacy Podcast on Twitter as well. Today, we continue our mini-series with former DEA head, Joseph Ranazizi. He was kind enough to share not only his career development pathway for us or with us previously on the Pharmacy Podcast, but we continue our conversation with Mr. Ranazizi about a hot topic bucket, if you will, of several different issues within pharmacy, law, and controlled substances. Today's episode asks and addresses questions and comments around benzodiazepines and scheduling of those, and how states can schedule under their Controlled Substance Acts separately from the federal controlled substances. We also talk a lot about opioids, hydrocodone specifically, and move into the illicit substances being abused in this country, heroin primarily, and how we might fix that problem. Give a listen to today's episode. It's a continuous conversation that we're having with Mr. Ranazizi. If you're interested, the first part of this Hot Topics uh, episode was already published here at the Pharmacy Podcast. You're certainly welcome to go back and listen to that. As well, previously, Mr. Ranazizi shared his career development with us on DEA during the course of his several decades of experience and time in tenure with the DEA. Thanks so much for listening. And as always, we look for your feedback on social media. The best place to provide it is at Twitter. Always look for us under at Pharmacy Podcast. All right, Joe Ranazizi, thank you for coming back to the Pharmacy Podcast. Thank you for having me. So last time you were with us, we focused on career development because, again, DEA is one of those really interesting kind of niche career areas and opportunities for pharmacists. But we wanted to bring you back on the show to focus more on all the interesting things that are happening right now with particularly controlled substances in the U.S., um, for good or for not so good. But let's kind of get into the basics and the mechanics. So can you first and foremost describe how DEA worked or works with, you know, state the other stakeholders? So state pharmacy and medical boards, professional societies and industry groups as kind of a starting point. That's a great question. Because DEA is both a regulatory and an enforcement uh, organization within government, we wear two hats. So everybody just generally says, hey, well, they're an enforcement agency. They must work well with law enforcement. And obviously we do. Uh, We have task forces all over the country. We work hand in hand with state and local law enforcement officers. They're our partners and they're just like we are. But what people don't understand is our other partners, which are equally as important, are the state pharmacy and medical boards. Uh, We work hand in hand with those medical boards and pharmacy boards. Uh, When we, we do rulemaking, we expect them to be at the table as stakeholders, making sure that what we're doing in the rulemaking process is is not only 
it's not only good for public health and safety, but it's also good for them because they're the ones that inevitably have to explain to the pharmacists and doctors what the rule says and how it's going to be enforced. Uh, because the state generally adopts the federal rules. So we work very close with the state medical board, state pharmacy boards. When we have an investigation on a doctor or a pharmacist, the state is usually right there with us. So if we go ahead and move forward with an order to show cause or an arrest, they're there with us doing the same action within the state authority. So, so it, they're no different than any other law enforcement agency. We're working hand in hand with them. As far as professional societies, uh, we work very well with the professional societies. I generally did all of the National Association of uh, Boards of Pharmacy and the uh, Federation of State Medical Board work. Professional societies, we used to break up. We would never ever turn down a professional society that wanted us to come out and speak. I would, we would constantly be doing uh, presentations for different professional societies and uh, for that matter, industry groups. We, we want the industry groups and the professional societies to understand the regulations. We want them to understand the law. We want them to understand what's trending. You know, people talk about what's trending on the internet. We always talk about what's trending in pharmaceutical enforcement. What's the new way of trying to get prescription medications from pharmacists or doctors? You know, is it the internet? Is it rogue pain clinics? Is it doctor shopping? How are they getting the drugs? What scams are they using? And we need to get that out. And we do that through the professional organizations and through the boards of pharmacy. Uh, and as far as the industry groups go, same concept. We want the industry groups to understand what's going on. We deploy our people to all the industry conferences. We've never turned down an industry conference. We've always had the right people there doing the same presentations. And our presentations are fairly consistent. We don't want to change. We change our presentations. But when we change our presentations, everybody's presentation changes. That way they're very consistent. So the message is always clear. So we work very well with all of those segments. And to be clear, you served with DEA for over 30 years, but you're now retired from DEA. I'm retired from DEA. I retired in October, October 31st, 2015. Halloween. Yes. All right. So... What steps does DEA take to ensure that the DEA registrants can get their questions answered? I'm sure DEA probably fields thousands of questions um, on a regular basis. Well, DEA set up multiple ways for registrants to get their, answer, their questions answered. The first way is through our call center. If a registrant has a question regarding his registration or just a general question, he could call in through the call center. He also could call or send an email or a letter into the liaison and policy section. And all this is on the DEA website. Um, for our industry 
registrants, such as the manufacturers or distributors. Those manufacturers or distributors uh, could get questions answered during uh, yearly forums that we put on. They could call into liaison and policy. They could call into our drug evaluation section for quota questions. Uh, and they have on-site inspections that are done periodically, and they can get their questions answered during that periodic on-site inspection from local DEA officials. They also could call right in. Any registrant could any day pick up the phone and call directly into the local DEA office and ask for the diversion group, and they would be more than happy to answer your questions. DEA is very transparent. They want people to ask questions and they want to be able to answer those questions and they want to make it as easy as possible. Now, I know there was questions and I know there's been reports that DEA won't talk to the industry or DEA won't talk to the registrants or it's too difficult to get a hold of DEA and we think that's nonsense. You could always call into a DEA office. You could always find a DEA person either in headquarters or in the field, They're just a phone call away or on the website. Plus everything that we teach is on the website. So if you don't want to talk to somebody, you can just go to the website, navigate the website and find the answer to your question. This question wasn't something that we talked about prior to recording, but I was curious about it. DEA actually puts quotas on the production of C1s and C2s. Can you explain that a little bit more? Yeah, that's that's actually a great question because it's something that people don't understand. The Drug Enforcement Administration is required by statute to create production, manufacturing, and aggregate quotas for the United States for Schedule 1 and 2 controlled substances, certain Schedule 3. Uh, well, actually, Schedule 1 and 2 controlled substances. Uh, so... When we set those quotas, those quotas are established based on need. And the need per the statute is based on what the companies produce as justification for what they need. So if I'm establishing a quota, I can't establish it for a particular drug. I only could establish it for the active ingredient, for instance, oxycodone, hydrochloride. I establish a quota, an aggregate quota for that, for all of the oxycodone hydrochloride that's needed in the United States. And then the manufacturers take from that pie, as you will, a piece of that pie, and that's how they're, they, that's what they manufacture. And then it goes down into production quotas, and then from that, they manufacture the amount of tablets, pills, dosage forms, whatever you're going to uh, manufacture, and then it goes into the distribution chain. But quotas are based on statute, we, and we have to follow the statute. If you're interested, uh, the statute is 826, uh, 21 U.S.C. 826. It's, it's uh, production quotas for controlled substances, and it's very detailed, and it explains exactly how the government is required to do quotas. We don't set quotas for, man, for 
wholesalers and distributors or pharmacies. That's something I hear I heard when I was out uh, doing presentations over the last three or four years. Oh, well, you're establishing quotas for manu- for wholesalers, distributors, and pharmacies. That is not correct. There is no federal quota for distributors, wholesalers, and pharmacies. There's never been one. It's not in the law. Hmm. Interesting. So around the Controlled Substances Act, what are some of the other maybe fallacies or general ideas that perhaps are not correct or maybe you got a lot of questions around prior to retirement? Well, quotas has always been, we do, we, well, I used to do what they call a pharmacy diversion awareness conference where I would go in front in a state in front of a group of pharmacists and I'd answer whatever question they want. We give them a presentation from the state board, national association and law enforcement. And then at the end, we'd ask any, you could ask any question and quotas would always be the first question. Why are you establishing a quota on a distributor or a wholesaler? And I don't know who started that, uh, but that's just, there is no quota for that. So quotas, and I think we, we talked about quotas. Yeah. The second thing is scheduling. Uh, people think that the Drug Enforcement Administration could just reschedule a product whenever we want or it, without going through a process. And that's just not correct. And the perfect example is hydrocodone. When a government receives a petition for rescheduling, it could be from anybody, a private citizen, a doctor, uh, a person involved in treatment. But as long as that request, that petition has all the necessary requirements, we have to look at it and begin a process to reschedule. And that's what happened with hydrocodone. Hydrocodone came in on a petition. We looked at it. The petition was reasonable. And we started doing an eight-factor analysis, which is required by the statute. When the, the statute tells us what exactly, what factors we need to look at, once we do our initial assessment through the eight-factor analysis, we send it to HHS. HHS and FDA look at their uh, same eight factors. They do their own analysis. They send back a recommendation, and it's either yes or no. And if it's yes, the drug goes through the scheduling process. We send out a notice of proposed rule. We say, here's the notice of proposed rule. We're rescheduling this drug, and here's your opportunity to provide notice and comment. When the notice and comment period ends, we look at all of the comments that have been received. We have to look at each one and take each one into consideration. Once we take it into consideration, we look at everything as a whole, we make a final decision. If we want to reschedule based on the scientific evidence that was provided by HHS and by our own scientists and whatever the commenters gave, and then look at the negative comments as to why the scheduling action couldn't be done, at that point in time, we make a decision we put out a final rule and the drug is rescheduled. That's why the process takes years. It doesn't take months, doesn't take weeks, it takes years. The scheduling process for hydrocodone started in 1999 and I think it was finally scheduled in 2000, 
13 or 14. Okay. So it takes time. Marijuana is another example. People say, well, why don't you just reschedule marijuana? It could only reschedule based on the law. And right now, marijuana, when during my tenure, marijuana, smoke marijuana, never met the criteria to remove from schedule one. It just didn't. It didn't so, how? Like there were no petitions to have it reviewed. It failed the eight factor test. I mean, what were the issues there? Because me- medical marijuana and marijuana for recreational use are obviously hot topics right now. So the DEA's position has been pretty firm around keeping it as a C1 at the federal level. However, obviously there's states and jurisdictions now legalizing it. Well, if you look at Schedule 1 and the criteria for Schedule 1, I think the first one is the substance has a higher potential for abuse. And we know that marijuana has a high potential for abuse. And I'm doing this in very rough terms, but this is how you would look at it. The second requirement is that the drug or other substance has no currently accepted medical use and treatment in the United States. That's true. A lot of these states that have created these quote unquote medical marijuana laws have done it not because there's science out there that says marijuana is a medicine, not that they have controlled double blinded studies that prove that it is uh, capable of treating some specific disease. They did it because they were lobbied into doing it. They did it by referendum, but they didn't do it based on science. And there's no science that shows that this drug is a medicine. The agency or organization that's been charged with ensuring that a drug is both safe, effective, and pure is the Department of Health and Human Services and the FDA, Food and Drug Administration. Now, we have a process in place that's been in place for many, many years to protect the public. And that is that any drug before it's made a medicine, has to go through the drug evaluation process that was set up by statute and given to the FDA and HHS. This drug has never, ever been designated a medicine that's both safe, effective, and pure by HHS. Therefore, it has no accepted medical use in the United States, and it will remain in Schedule 1. We base our decisions on science. We don't base our decisions on referendum. We don't base it on, well, we want it regardless of what you say. It's, it's not emotion. It's science. So, and, and quite frankly, go ahead. No, I, I just, that's, that's the way the system is. So. so let me play devil's advocate here for a minute with you. What about those that really believe there could be some legitimate medical purposes for marijuana? And so is there a process in place that investigators can investigate C1s? Absolutely. To investigate a control to investigate any controlled substance, there's a process. But a schedule one process, you, you get a schedule one researcher uh, registration, and that registration allows you to handle whatever schedule one drug you're researching. And from that schedule one drug, you, you, before you get that license, you're going to apply to 
HHS, uh, show them your research protocols. Once they approve the research protocols, it gets thrown over to DEA. DEA gives you the registration. They make sure that you have a, a place to, to keep those drugs safely stored and to make sure that you have the appropriate way of, of determining where the drug is going through record keeping requirements. And that's it. And you get your registration and you're off and running. It's not that difficult. People make it difficult, but it's not really that difficult. Uh, so I don't understand why people say, oh, we can't get our, this drug researched. There's a, there's a lot of research going on with marijuana right now. Just like any other drug, there's a lot of research. And all these other researchers are able to get their research applications done and in, their protocols approved, and they're, they're off and running. So I don't understand where the disconnect is that I can't get my marijuana researcher registration just doesn't make any sense. So it sounds like there's research ongoing with that. So of course there is. if there's positive outcomes associated with that, I'm assuming at one point DEA would take a look at the petitions that could be coming in to possibly reschedule marijuana. Yes. But again, the, the ultimate decision on whether the drug has an accepted medical use is with F HHS, FDA. Got it. They're the ultimate decision maker. Okay. So I want to move on to the benzodiazepines because this was a recent discussion that I saw um, in various places around the internet. One of the jurisdictions in the U.S. was thinking about making alprazolam a C2. And so can you share your thoughts on the benzodiazepines if one benzo becomes a C2, do all the benzodiazepines have to become a C2? Does DEA look at drugs as a class? Can you comment on that? Yes. And in fact, I read some very interesting comments from, I guess, very learned people who, who thought that the one state that's been in the news right now, I think it's Alabama, uh, was you know, they're wrong in rescheduling and they said they can't do it because the feds won't allow it. Uh, first thing you have to look at is federal law. Federal law is the baseline. So if a drug is a schedule four and a schedule, uh, schedule four in under the federal controlled substances act and it's implementing regulations, it's got to remain a schedule four under federal law, but a state could upschedule it. They could schedule it to a three or a two and not consult with the feds. Remember, it's a baseline. They could do anything more stringent than federal law. They just can't do anything less stringent than federal law. So the idea that Alabama can't do it because the feds didn't authorize it, it's just nonsense. Alabama could do whatever they want as long as it's more stringent than the federal law. The fact is that you don't have to do a whole class of drugs. You could just do one drug. Opioids are a perfect example. We have opioids in Schedule 3. We have opioids in Schedule 5. We have uh, opioids in Schedule 2. So it's not the class of drug. It's the specific drug that matters. Um, the specific active ingredient of the drug, concentration of the drug, and what form the drug is in. So... They don't have to go after every controlled substance if they choose not uh, within that class. They could leave, for instance, Valium and 
or uh, diazepam and tamazepam, schedule four, and make alprazolam a schedule two or a schedule three or whatever they want because they're the state. Federal government's the same way. We don't do it based on the drug class. We do it based on the active ingredient that, that of the drug we're talking about. So, so this is just another fallacy that people have to, all you have to do is go to the statute and read 21 United States code and 21 code of federal regulations, 1300 on, on from there. Uh, those, those, each one of those books give you a roadmap of everything you need to know about controlled substance law. And so, you know, I, I, I realize people like to freely express their views on the internet, but sometimes you can't always believe what you read. With that, and continuing on the Holy Trinity here, let's go back to hydrocodone. Do you think scheduling that as a C2 at the federal level has actually helped or harmed in terms of the opioid epidemic that we're having in this country right now? I think it's, it's definitely helped. Um, the opioid epidemic started with hydrocodone, basically. Before we had the internet, the internet drug crisis, when people were distributing hydrocodone and alprazolam through internet sites with really no medical care whatsoever, uh, there, was, there was always prescription drug abuse, but not in the quantities we saw once the internet hit. And the internet was all hydrocodone and alprazolam. And what we saw was people just liked hydrocodone. Hydrocodone was misscheduled from the very beginning. It should have always been a schedule two. In fact, what people don't understand is the active ingredient hydrocodone in its pure form has always been in schedule two. What we did was schedule the combination products and people kept saying, no, if you do that, people aren't gonna get their medicine. Chronic pain patients are not gonna get their medicine. Uh, but there are so many things built into the Controlled Substances Act to allow for multiple prescriptions, to allow and ensure that people get their medicine. When we weighed all the options and, and looked at the definition of Schedule 2 as compared to Schedule 3, hydrocodone should have been in Schedule 2, the combination products in the very beginning. Taking this drug and moving to Schedule 2 showed the practitioners and the prescribers that this drug was just as dangerous as morphine, oxycodone, aperidine, and any of the other Schedule II opioids. And in fact, studies showed that the potency difference between oxycodone and hydrocodone were negligible. They were almost the same. So Goodman and Gilman's reported the exact same dosing for both hydrocodone and oxycodone. So when you look at the two drugs, they're virtually the same. You, they have the same profile for abuse. They have the same addictive properties. So they should be classified the same. We believe we saved a lot of people from that drug by moving into Schedule 2 and informing the, the medical community that the drug was just like any other Schedule 2. And if you notice, people are not really freely writing hydrocodone prescriptions anymore 
because they understand that hydrocodone is on par with drugs like morphine and oxycodone. Let me go back to playing devil's advocate here because there's a rising contingency, and of course the statistics support this, that a lot of people now addicted to heroin started on prescription opioids. So there's a, I guess, counter-argument to that, that because now Vicodin is a C2 or any hydrocodone combination, I'm not just picking on that particular brand, but any schedules twos that have hydrocodone um, as well as oxycodone, the street values of those have skyrocketed to the point where heroin now is coming in illicitly. It's much more pure and much more deadly mixed with, you know, you name it, carfentanil, etc. So I guess the argument is, or the question to you is, how do we stop this escalation now that people are becoming addicted to heroin, carfentanil, taking all these drugs, potentially overdosing at much higher rates um, moving forward? And the beauty of that question is that goes to the crux of the problem. The problem is, is that people, parents, kids, young adults, and, and even adults don't understand that would you rather have death by gunshot or death by knife because you're going to die either way. If you look at the figures, the amount of people that were dying from prescription drug overdoses are still, still higher than heroin and uh, the, the analogs of, of fentanyl, fentanyl and its analog substances. So people are dying. The, the fact is with hydrocodone being rescheduled and the government putting uh, more pressure on people to follow the law and ensure that they're, they're doing everything to prevent diversion is, yes, it's cutting back on the amount of prescriptions, but that's a good thing because we wouldn't have a heroin or a fentanyl or acetylfentanyl or any of the other fentanyls out there if we didn't have a prescription drug problem. Everything started with prescription drugs. I defy anybody to show me how heroin and fentanyl started outside of the use of prescription drugs. Between 70 and 80% of the people on heroin in a study, in multiple studies, they started with prescription medication, prescription opioids. So the fact is, if we don't handle the prescription opioids, if we don't get a handle on how they're dispensed, how they're prescribed, and how they're diverted, we're going to have a heroin and fentanyl problem three times the amount. We're going to lose a generation of kids who believe it's okay to pop pills. And you're right. They have to move to heroin, but it's not because the prices have changed because oxycodone is still a dollar a milligram and it's been that way for eight to 10 years and hydrocodone's milligram price is it's pretty much the same. It's not moving either. The fact is, is that we know that your body builds a tolerance to the drug and if you want that same pharmacologic effect, you're going to have to take more drug. And pretty soon you're not taking one or two tablets, you're taking 10 or 12. And now one or two tablets is only, I don't know, $40, $60 a day. When you're taking 10 or 12 at $30 a tablet because you're doing the 30 milligrams, now you're into serious money. 
And heroin looks a lot better because heroin's only $10 a bag. And you can get really high, really quick on heroin. The problem is, is the dealers know that if they taint the heroin with fentanyl or acetafentanil or any one of those analogs, the heroin gets another, a better pop to it. They get a nicer high, but since it's fentanyl, it's very difficult to cut. It's very difficult to maintain a uniform mixture. People get hot shots and die. But it all starts with the prescription drugs. So if we want to protect the future, the future generations, we got to handle on the prescription drugs. And to do that, we have to institute stronger regulations and stronger controls. And the idea that people say, oh, well, if you didn't control it, we wouldn't have a heroin problem is just nonsense. It's crazy. Well, uh, let me let me let me play the opposite here again briefly. Mm-hmm. So Portugal, for example, made all of these drugs legal, basically. And they're having some success with treatment. But so what should we do as a country? Because obviously everything that we're doing is not necessarily working. We're still losing, you know, people in droves to opioid addiction. So what do we do to fix this problem? You you just said it. It, it, You can't just fix a problem by enforcement. We're going to go out and arrest everybody. You can't fix it just by controls. You have to fix the people that have the problem currently, and that's through treatment. And then you have to pay some insurance money, put some funding into demand reduction and prevention so we could explain to kids, you know, treatment is, is just, if you're in a rural area in the United States, you might not have a treatment provider for 70, 100 miles. And if you're a kid whose parents are poor, who's stuck on pills and now heroin because, you know, you can get in the cycle, but you want treatment, Good luck getting it because there's just not enough treatment providers. So what we need to do is figure a way to get treatment into the rural areas and get more treatment providers out into the communities so we can get these people treated. There's plenty of ways to do it. There's plenty of drugs out there from buprenorphine to methadone to naltrexone for people that are clean. But we need to get treatment providers out there and we have to expand treatment. I've always been a big advocate that we have all of these people who have PhDs in psychology. They're psychologists. They work with people. They, they, they do one-on-one interactions with people where they provide treatment. Why not allow them the opportunity to prescribe a drug like buprenorphine? And we're giving everybody the opportunity. We're giving physicians assistants and, and nurse practitioners now under cures the opportunity to be licensed to prescribe buprenorphine. Okay, you have PhD psychologists who do this type of medical care for a living and they don't have that opportunity. The idea is getting more people out there who do this treatment and do it appropriately, do it correctly. And, and that's why we, we just don't care about treatment. We just throw money at it and that money's not gonna do anything if we don't have a plan on how we're gonna get treatment providers into the communities that need them, like the West Virginians and the Kentucky, rural Kentucky, rural Tennessee, rural Indiana. It's not happening. 
So, so we need to get treatment and then getting into the schools, getting these kids at young ages and explaining what's going on, explaining why they've got to avoid these drugs because demand reduction works. If it started early enough, you're not going to get a kid in high school to listen to you, but you will get a kid in grade school to listen to you. And by the time he's in high school, he's learned that these drugs are bad and could harm you. That's what you need. You need a four pillar approach. Enforcement is just part of it. Continued regulatory oversight is part of it. But if you don't have treatment and prevention, you're going to lose. And we're going to, we're going to fail miserably. We thank you for listening to part two of our mini series conversation with former DEA head, Mr. Joseph T. Ranazizi. We're so grateful for him to share his thoughts and ideas around controlled substances, illicit substances, abusable substances in the U.S., as well as uh, a potpourri, if you will, of pharmacy law questions. Tune in next time for the third part of this series focused on the following topics pharmacy robberies and how to prevent some of those. Time safes, should we even have them? What about hydrocodone and oxycodone in the community practice setting? Pseudoephedrine. Should even the DEA exist in this day and age? We explore that with Mr. Ramazizi. And then last but not least, the administrative changes with the president, Mr. Trump, and where uh, they are headed with the administration relative to controlled substances third part of the series will be fabulous. If you haven't listened to any of the other parts with Mr. Ranazizi, we would highly encourage you to go back and give a listen to those here at Pharmacy Podcast. Until next time, my name is Erin Albert. You can find me over at Twitter at Erin L. Albert. And of course, as always, we welcome your feedback at Twitter as well at Pharmacy Podcast. Have a great day.